I've shared this illustration in the past, but I'll share it again because it fits so well with the message this morning and the text we're going to consider. Several years ago, the Saturday Evening Post had an article entitled, The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. It revealed the reaction of a husband to his wife's colds during their first seven years of marriage. It went something like this. The first year. Sugar dumpling. I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all this strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your meals in from Rossini's. I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. The second year. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I called Doc Miller and asked him to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please, just for Papa. The third year. Maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something to eat. Have you got any canned soup? The fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the floor, you'd better lie down. The fifth year. Why don't you take a couple aspirin? The sixth year. I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. The seventh year. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? The decline of marriage as seen through the common cold. A funny look at a not-so-funny reality. Marriage is in trouble in our day and age. And the ironic thing about it is that our society continues to listen to the very philosophy that is killing it. Take, for instance, the way our culture defines love. Love is described as a beautiful, flowery feeling or an ecstatic emotion. And some would say, what's wrong with that? Well, what happens to a marriage when that beautiful, flowery feeling is no longer present? Or what happens when the emotional level doesn't stay at a high peak? The approach today is to leave. Or as one man described it, look, you don't have to keep torturing yourself. Bail out. Life's too short to spend it in a losing battle. You've given it your best shot and it hasn't worked, so give it up. Or the least you can do is try an exciting affair. Get a little fun back into your life. There are lots of available and attractive lovers with no strings attached. We're living in the 21st century, not the 1920s. Things are a lot different now. Love today means never having to say you're sorry, not I'm stuck with this creep the rest of my life. And marriage is okay for those who are too insecure to cut it on their own, but you're not the type. Why stay in that miserable cage? You're free. Walk away and never look back. Besides, everybody's doing it. You see, we're living in a period of history when many don't know the meaning of the word commitment. And yet God's standards haven't changed. A vow is still a vow. Listen to the introductory words of, from a little booklet entitled Commitment, the Key to Marriage, written a number of years ago by Dr. Charles Swindoll. He says, and I quote, The 1980 Winter Olympics ended yesterday. As I write these words, Monday morning sports pages all across America contain similar headlines to the Los Angeles Times, The American Dream Turns to Gold. 
a phenomenon has occurred. A bunch of no-name college kids and minor league rejects have whipped the cream of international hockey, the Soviets, who had not lost an Olympic hockey game in 12 years, who who have been wearing gold medals since 1964, no longer. A group of kids, all in their teens and early 20s, have startled the athletic world. Everyone except a coach named Herb Brooks and this gang of hot dogs on skates said it couldn't be done. It was a silly, unattainable, impossible dream two weeks ago. Unlike the predictions of experts regarding speed skater Eric Hyden, who won five gold medals and emerged as the Olympic superstar, nobody gave this improbable little hockey team a second glance. So how did they do it? Honestly now, what turned the American dream to gold? How was it possible for them to tie the Swedes, clobber the Czechs, beat the Russians, and come from behind to whip the Finns 4-2 for the final victory? Well, if you're expecting a super-duper secret, you know, some hidden surprise play they use, you obviously didn't watch the games. Those confident kids from the Midwest and East didn't rely on rabbit in the hat tricks to win. They faced veteran finesse teams one after another with a game plan as solid as hockey itself. Never back down, never quit, hang tough, keep hammering away, stay at it regardless. In a word, commitment. In our permissive, irresponsible escapism mentality, commitment is almost a dirty word. Those who would rather rationalize and run than stick with it and watch God pull off a miracle or two, not to mention shaping us in the process, resist this whole concept, end quote. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why people no longer understand commitment is because they no longer understand love the way God defines it. You see, God doesn't define love as merely an emotion or a feeling. Love, as God defines it, involves the will or volition. Love is a choice that issues forth in an act of selfless sacrifice. Turn with me to the most familiar verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. Let's turn it to John 3 by way of introduction this morning. John chapter 3, verse 16. Many of you wouldn't even need to turn here. You could quote the verse from memory, but I'll read it for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Please notice that this does not say, For God so loved the world that he felt like he was on cloud nine. Or for God so loved the world that his emotions were running wild. Or, for God so loved the world that he felt chill bumps all over. No, it says, God so loved the world that he gave. It was an act of selfless sacrifice. Turn over just a few pages to John 13. John 13 records our Lord's final night with his men. Jesus is in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem with his men. It is only a few hours until he will be taken captive, tried throughout the night, and crucified the next morning. If you compare the timing of this with the other Gospels, you will find that the disciples were actually arguing over who was the greatest. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were all sitting around with dirty feet. 
Now, I'm sure that Jesus wasn't feeling real fond of his men at this time. His level of emotional attraction wasn't at its peak. But look at verse 1 of John 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Greek word end here in this verse is like a coin. It has two sides to it. On one side, it means to the end in the sense of time. That is all the way to the end. Jesus never stopped loving them. On the other side of the coin, it means to the end as in the maximum, the uttermost. So Jesus loved his men all the way to the very end, and he loved them to the uttermost. How do we know that he loved them? Verse 2. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. How do we know Jesus loved his men? It wasn't some emotion that Jesus was feeling. It was an act of selfless sacrifice. So let me say it again. The Bible's definition of love is not merely an emotion. Love, as God defines it, involves the will, volition, choice. Love is a choice that issues forth in an act or in acts of selfless sacrifice. That's why Jesus can say what he said in verse 34 of this same chapter. Skip down a few verses. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, <coughs> that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus can command us to love one another, because love is a choice, not merely an emotion or a feeling. In light of this, on our way over to our text in 1 Peter, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Just keep going to the right after Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, then Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus was a pastor to whom Paul wrote this letter, and Paul instructed him in this letter what he should teach the congregation that he was pastoring. And here's one of the things that Paul uh, exhorted him to teach. Teach, verse 3, the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they, that is the older women, admonish or teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. The reason the older women can teach the younger women to love their husbands and children is because love involves an act of the will. Love involves action. So this is saying uh, the older women teach the younger women what love looks like, how to love their husbands, how to love their children. Now, just so that I'm not misunderstood, please hear this. Let me say that what you choose to love you become greatly attracted to, and what you are greatly attracted to, you still must choose to love. I'm saying this because I don't want to give the impression that love is a cold, emotionless action. 
That's not the case at all. Love is not cold. It's not emotionless. It's just that in our culture, we seem to base everything on feelings. And we think that if the feelings aren't present, we still can't love in action. That's not true. God says the choice should lead the feelings. The choice should lead the emotions. So with that as background, let's turn to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Our text consists of only one verse, but it's a powerful one for us as husbands. Having considered what the Holy Spirit said through the pen of Peter to wives last Lord's Day, we turn the coin over this morning and look at what the Holy Spirit says to us husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, the them referring to the wives mentioned in the earlier verses, Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As we saw in the last message, here in the opening verses of chapter 3, Peter is giving instructions regarding marriage. If you were here last Lord's Day, then you know he gave three principles to wives, and now he gives three principles to husbands. The first principle in this verse for us as husbands is, husbands, live with your wife. That's what Peter says. Live or dwell with them. This may sound basic. This may sound obvious, but it is not in many marriages. You see, this doesn't just mean to have the same address live in the sense of, you know, have the same post office box or the same address. The term dwell or live here in this verse verse means to settle down with or be at home with, and it suggests the idea of being closely aligned. Peter is calling for close companionship. He is calling for togetherness. There are a lot of husbands who share the same house with their wives, but they don't dwell with them. They don't live with them as Peter is calling for here. Husbands, do you talk with your wife? I didn't ask if you talk down to your wife. Do you talk with your wife? Do you communicate with her? Do you spend time with her? That's what it means to dwell with your wife. That's what it means to live with your wife. The second exhortation here is understand your wife. Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, live with her in an understanding way. Various translations render this differently. Dwell with them according to knowledge, that is, knowing them, understanding them. This is probably the hardest thing for us as husbands to do because we assume, wrongly, that our wives are just like us. They aren't. Even though our society says men and women are the same, men and women are not the same, regardless of what our society says. God made us different. God made us male and female. Women have different emotions than men, different feelings, different thoughts, different fears, different dreams, different perspectives, different outlooks. And thank God they do. What a boring and terrible place this earth would be if all women thought exactly like all men. But this is so often a source of aggravation for men. They get aggravated with their wives because their wives don't think like them. 
They don't see things the same way they see them. But God says to us as husbands, rather than getting aggravated at your wife for not being like you, and rather than expecting your wife to be like you, you seek to understand your wife. Get to know her. Appreciate her perspective. Appreciate the differences. That's the second exhortation here in this verse. The third exhortation in this verse to us husbands is value your wife. This principle is taken from the word honor in most of our English translations. If you happen to have the NIV, it's translated respect. Same Greek word, though. though. This word honor or respect here in verse 7 is from a Greek root that can be translated precious. So the idea here is to consider your wife precious. Honor her. Value her. Appreciate her. And I'm sure that many husbands here this morning would say, I do value my wife. Then make sure she knows that. Communicate that to her. Do you tell her that? Do you show her that? Do your words and your actions tell her that she is precious to you? Do your priorities tell her that she is precious? Does your schedule tell her that she is precious? God says it should. Value your wife and show her honor. And then Peter adds, as to the weaker vessel. So is that a put down of women? Absolutely not. In the context of the first century, when just about all labor was manual labor, Peter is reminding husbands that it would be insensitive of a husband to expect his wife to be able to do exactly what he does by way of manual labor. So it's another way of reinforcing the importance of showing your wife honor, respecting, appreciating her, valuing her. And even though most wives would not have the physical strength and stamina of their husbands, Peter is quick to remind us that we are heirs together of the grace of life. Husbands and wives are equals in the spiritual benefits of salvation. D. Edmund Hebert said it this way, quote, Wives, like husbands, believe in the same Savior, are redeemed by the same ransom, live by the same grace, and look forward to the same eternal destiny. End quote. We are partners. Partners. Which is why Peter closes this verse by saying, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Isn't that an interesting addition? Men, listen. If you treat your wife poorly... Don't insult God by going to Him in prayer to bring your requests before Him. That's a complete contradiction. It's an utter contradiction. God expects us to treat people properly, and especially the person closest to us, our spouse. If we don't, then we shouldn't expect God to hear our prayers. So the Apostle Peter, who was married, by the way, We know Peter was married. 
1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that Peter took his wife with him on some of his missionary journeys. And we also know in the Gospels that, he, that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was married, and he knew from an experiential point of view what it takes to be a godly husband. And so he writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yes, but he also writes from personal experience. And he says, husband, live with your wife. Husband, understand your wife. Husband, value your wife. These principles that Peter sets forth here are reinforced elsewhere in Scripture in two other primary passages. So I want us to reinforce them from those passages, one in Ephesians and one in Colossians. So go back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll just expound on these principles from these two other passages, Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians chapter 5. Last Lord's Day, by way of introduction to our text in 1 Peter 3, we looked at verses 22, 23, and 24, where the Apostle Paul addresses wives. Now we consider verses 25 and following, where he addresses husbands. And notice how he begins to address husbands. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. That is the primary command of the passage. But Paul doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there. But instead he chooses to go on to describe the character of the love a husband should have for his wife. And the first characteristic is that it should be a giving love. So he says here in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How did Christ love the church? We saw it earlier in John 3.16 where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How did Christ love the church? Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved the church so much that he gave his life for her. He sacrificed himself. And it goes without saying that we didn't deserve it. Romans 5.10 says we were God's enemies. And still Christ died for us. You see, this kind of love isn't conditional. It's not based on whether or not it's deserved. God's love is unconditional. And this is the kind of love a husband should have for his wife. A husband should not say, well, depends on how she treats me. Depends on how she responds to me. Depends on how she relates to me. No, that's completely wrong. That's completely horizontal in our focus. A love that God demonstrated in Christ is a love that gives sacrificially. That is the kind of love a husband is to have toward his wife. It's not conditional. It's not based on what she does, how she acts. In his book on the family, Dr. John MacArthur says this, and I quote, There are a lot of men who want to be spiritual leaders or spiritual giants or preachers or teachers or elders or deacons, and they want to be pious, genuinely pious. But if you want to know whether they've got the real stuff or not, you should just check the house. Find out the last time they sacrificed their will for their wife. Find out whether they would die for her. Find out whether they would give up everything they have to meet her needs. If you do this, you'll find the reality of the issue. 
If it isn't a reality in the home, then it's a facade on the outside. And you may be playing spiritual giant, but if you're not sacrificially giving up yourself for the needs of your wife, you've missed the point. Love meets needs. Deserving them isn't the issue, end quote. One of the reasons this is so difficult for some men today is because it runs totally contrary to the philosophy of our time. Our world tells men, be the macho man. Be the big shot. Don't let anybody step on your territory. Fight back. Build up your identity. Protect your turf. Stand your ground. But God says, men, die to yourself and give sacrificially to your wife. Men, ask yourself this question. When was the last time you sacrificed what you wanted for the sake of your wife? In case it happened to be recently, and it's an anomaly, then ask yourself this question. How regularly, how regularly do you sacrifice what you want to do or your desires for the sake of your wife? That's the issue. Because a husband's love for his wife is to be a giving, sacrificial love. But that's not all. It's also to be a cleansing love. Verse 26 says this. He gave, Christ gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ loves the church so much that he wants it to be pure. He wants it to be holy. You see, true love seeks to purify. A husband who truly loves his wife will do everything to maintain her holiness, her righteousness, her purity. In fact, let me say this to the gals among us here this morning who aren't married. If a guy comes along and tells you he loves you and then tries to take away your virtue, don't believe him. That isn't love. Love seeks to purify Men, if you love your wife, if you really love your wife, seek to draw her to God. Seek to make her like Christ. Seek to pour virtue into her life. A husband's love for his wife should be a cleansing love. But that's still not all. It should also be a cherishing love. Verse 28 So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Here again is the idea of a love that gives, a a love that cares for, a love that pays attention to the other person. And men, just as we make sure to pay attention to things in our own lives, the Holy Spirit says here we should pay attention to our wives. You know, we spend a lot of time paying attention to ourselves. 
I, don't, I obviously don't know every man in this room, so I can't list all the specifics of what we do as men, but you know, I can list some general ones. We jog, we exercise, we eat, we wear nice clothes, we shower, we, whatever it is that we do to, to give attention to ourselves and pay attention to ourselves. And the point is this, just as you take time to care for yourself, take time to care for your wife. At the end of verse 29, Paul says, even as the Lord does with the church. The Lord cares for his church. Verse 30 says, for we are members of his body. Because we are one with Christ, he cares for us. And because a husband is one with his wife, he should care for her. Our love for our wives should be giving, cleansing, cherishing, Then finally, in this passage, a husband's love for his wife is described as an enduring love, unending, not temporary. Verse 31 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a direct quote from Genesis 2.24. It's probably italicized or in quotation marks in your Bible. So this is basically Paul's way of saying, listen, this is nothing new. I'm not really telling you anything new. God's standard for marriage is still the same. This was in his intention from the very beginning. The word joined here in verse 31, or depending on your translation, this word has the idea of to glue something together, to bind something together. And the point is this relationship is absolutely unbreakable. Because a husband's love for his wife is to be an enduring love, not temporary, not fickle. It is enduring, unending. This is the kind of love a husband is to have for his wife. A giving love, cleansing love, cherishing love, an enduring love. Maybe you're asking yourself the question, wow, there's a lot here that's stated. Why is it so important for a husband to love like this? Paul could have just said, husbands, love your wives. Why does he go into all of this detail? What is so important about this? Here's the answer. Because your marriage, men, is a picture of Christ and the church. It's a picture. It's either, it's an example. It's either a poor example or it's a good example, but it is an example. One way or the other. It is an example. And so verse 32 says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, now here's here's the summary on marriage, going all the way back to verse 22. Nevertheless, Let each one of you, this is addressing the husbands, that's who Paul has been addressing. Let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men, I ask you as I ask myself this probing question. Does your love for your wife accurately portray Christ's love For the church. Does your love, your love for your wife, exemplify, illustrate Christ's love for the church? God says it should. It should. Now flip over to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, as we reinforce these thoughts with one more passage. After Ephesians is Philippians, 
And then after Philippians is Colossians chapter 3. <coughs> Here in Colossians, as Paul addresses marriage, he does so in a far more abbreviated fashion than in Ephesians. He gives only one verse to wives, one to husbands, one to children, one to parents, etc. But what he says is powerful. Don't let the brevity uh, don't let the brevity steal from you the power of what he says here. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. And now he adds a new element that's not in Ephesians. It's not in First Peter either. And do not be bitter toward them. Here again in this verse, God defines something as an action that we commonly see as a feeling. And specifically, what I'm referring to is bitterness. When we think of bitterness, we usually think of a feeling. Someone feels bitter. But God is defining it as an action. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Now, bitterness can result in a feeling, certainly. Bitterness can result in an emotion, but it is primarily a choice. It's an act of the will. That's why God can command husbands not to be bitter against their wives. Both love, the positive command here in verse 19, and bitterness, the negative part, in both involve a choice. Both involve an act of the will. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, don't be bitter against your wife. Now, why would God command husbands not to be bitter toward their wives? Doesn't that sound strange to you initially? I remember the first time I read this verse, I thought, that sounds strange. Why put that in there? Why does God say, husbands, love your wives? We understand that one. But why do not be bitter toward them? I believe the answer is this. Because there are many husbands who are bitter toward their wives. There are many men who are bitter toward their wives because they don't think their wives are what they ought to be. They're disappointed with their wives, to be blunt to say it frankly. They think they've gotten a raw deal with the wife they have. They expect more out of their wives, so they are bitter toward them instead of loving toward them. That's why God says, husbands, love your wives. It doesn't matter if you think they deserve it. You don't deserve God's love, but he loves you anyway. So you should love your wife willingly, joyfully, sacrificially. But sadly, there are many husbands who are bitter toward their wives. And even if they aren't bitter in their feelings toward their wives, they treat them bitterly. In other words, they, they treat them harshly. They speak to them rudely, sternly, severely, cruelly. Men, God says, don't do that. Don't relate to your wife that way. Love your wife. Don't be bitter toward her. In your feelings, or in your words, or in your actions, or in your relationship. Love your wife, and don't be bitter toward her. Men, God has said that we are the head of the home. That is a tremendously awesome responsibility. And we need to take it very, very seriously. It is our responsibility as head of the home to do everything we can 
to have a great and fulfilling and exemplary marriage for the glory of God. Some men see the position as head of the home as, oh, that means I get to be the boss. That misses the point completely. The head of the home, as the head of the home, it's our responsibility to set the atmosphere, set the the tone in the marriage so that it is a fulfilling and exemplary marriage for the glory of God and the honor of Christ. So it's a responsibility. That's what it is. It's a responsibility. Four-year-old Susie had just been told the story of Snow White for the first time in her life. She could hardly wait to get home from nursery school to tell her mommy. With wide-eyed excitement, she retold the fairy tale to her mother that afternoon. After relating how Prince Charming had kissed Snow White back to life, Susie asked loudly, And do you know what happened then, Mommy? Yes, said her mom. They live happily ever after. No, responded Susie with a frown. They got married. (laughs) Beloved, marriage doesn't have to be a negative experience, which is the way it's sadly usually portrayed in our society. It doesn't have to be. Marriage can be joyful as we live it for the glory of God, as we are what we are as unto Christ. And I'll tell you what, you, you put two people in a marriage, both of whom live life that way. They do what they do as unto Christ, and they have this vertical perspective rather than this horizontal perspective. Oh, what's he going to do? What's she going to do? It all depends on, you know, all, my actions depend on their action. If you strip all of the way and you put two people who love Christ, and they do what they do as unto the Lord, and they love and they sacrifice, marriage is bliss. It's bliss. And it can be for the glory of God. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes here with just a few minutes remaining in our time together, just kind of think back through what you have heard and seen this morning. The very first verse that we looked at this morning is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today, whether you're married, single, that's, that doesn't matter. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, then John 3.16 is a great verse for you. God gave his Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that you can have eternal life. But the only way you can have eternal life is to let go of whatever is holding you back, to surrender to Christ, to believe in Him wholeheartedly, to believe in Him, as John 3.16 says. So, whether you're married or single, male or female here today, John 3.16 is for you. It's for me. But if you are married then hopefully these two weeks, last Lord's Day and today, have given us encouragement, challenge, exhortation to be the kinds of wives and husbands God wants us to be, not just to have a good marriage, but for the glory of Christ. So again, I remind you that if you're married, the way you relate to your spouse is an example 
It's either a poor example or it's a good example. But you're being an example. I know some of you are in some awful situations. And you are trying your utmost to the glory of God to be what God calls you to be. And that doesn't seem to be changing your marriage. Well, realize God sees, God knows, and as was often stated in the New Testament to slaves who had harsh masters, unreasonable masters, God will reward. So be the husband God wants you to be, even if your wife doesn't have any interest in being what God wants her to be. Wives, be the wife God wants you to be, even if your husband has no interest in being the kind of man God has called him to be. Latch on to a vertical perspective on life, every facet of life, including your marriage, and determine you will live to please and honor Christ in your actions and in your reactions. And Father, this is the challenge that you give to our hearts over and over again in your word, that whatever we do, we should do heartily as unto you. And so I pray that for each and every one of us here this morning, because whether or not a person is married, that that principle is true for every one of us. As students, as employees, as athletes, as roommates, whatever the the scenario, we, we all have responsibilities in life. We all have these interconnected relationships, obligations, things that you've put on our plate or in our life, and we are to, to carry those things out as doing them unto you, doing them to please you. Regardless of whatever kind of response we get or whatever kind of feedback or reaction, we are to set our eyes, set our focus on pleasing you in our lives. And so I pray that specifically for those of us who are married, as husbands and wives, that we would have that focus, that we would seek to be what you want us to be for the glory of Christ. And in closing this morning, we want to pray for anyone who is here among us, anyone, married, single, or whatever, who does not know you, Father, does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, May the truth of John 3.16, where we began this morning, grip their hearts that they would know that you loved this world in such a way that you gave your only begotten Son so that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So may you be pleased to draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, to come to know him, love him, follow him, and spend eternity with him. For it's in his precious and priceless name that we pray all of these things. Amen.